0: Welcome to Democratic Dialogue. I'm Larry Oaks, your host for this segment, and I'm so pleased. To be spending time today with Andrew DeFranza from HarborLight Community Partners. Thank Andrew?
1: You. Thank you, Larry. Nice, nice, to, nice you. to be here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we're here today to talk about the critically important issue of affordable housing and how um, a lack of affordable housing is affecting life for folks on the North Shore. And Andrew, um, it'd be wonderful for you to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the work that you do at HarborLight. Um, Please, And then I want to set the stage by sharing some information that, um, that really is distressing for us in the affordable housing community mm. and I think will really ring true with the audience. So sure. but please tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization.
1: Sure. Um, well, Harbor Light Community Partners is a pretty old nonprofit. We're locally rooted. So our origin is in uh, Beverly with the, actually the First Baptist Church there. We're an outgrowth of their social outreach mission from the 60s. Um, So we do four things. We develop affordable housing. We manage and operate affordable housing. We do a lot of interesting resident services, particularly for vulnerable populations, seniors, people that are homeless. And we uh, also do a lot of advocacy and public education around housing. So we've been around a long time. We only work on the North Shore. We're a local community development corporation. Um, We stick with those four elements of our activity and we have real estate all over the region. So in Gloucester and Rockport. Hamilton, Wenham, Beverly, Ipswich, Peabody, Marblehead, et cetera, et cetera, Salem. So um, we're glad to be here and view ourselves as sort of a local resource as to how to address affordable housing needs in the region. So local enough to know the nuances of the region and hopefully with enough capacity to deliver on needs over time. Wonderful.
0: Well, what I'll tell the audience won't be news to you, for sure. So the Joint Centers for Housing Studies at Harvard University releases an annual report, a series of reports, sort of uh, chronicling the struggles of the affordable housing industry and the challenges of meeting the need for more affordable housing. And It's incredible for me to read that over the last 30 years, uh, the university has pointed out that four million units of housing that would be affordable to families earning $26,000 a year has been lost in this country.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other startling statistic from the report Um, focused more closely here in Massachusetts, that half of the renters in this state are rent burdened, meaning they're paying at least 30% of their monthly income on their housing costs every month. Mm -hmm. And fully one out of every four Massachusetts residents is what we call extremely rent burdened, Mm -hmm. meaning more than 50% of their household income every month is going out to housing costs. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us as a local affordable housing leader how that plays out on the North Shore and here in Cape Ann, what do you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, we you know we see a variety of things, and talking about some of the causality is probably also interesting. But generally, what we see is that there's what happens is there's this massive break between people who do certain kinds of jobs in society where they're able to afford the economics of market rate development, what is happening, because lots of things are getting built. Um, That's not strange, although not as many as used to get built. Um, So there's a sense that there's a lot of building, and yet the data shows that we've actually slowed in our growth of construction. Um, But there's also this this significant divide where if you are doing any kind of a job, a job that, mind you, all of us rely on, that's really that's in the service industry of any type. So if you're taking care of our elderly parents or our children, you're working in one of the retail establishments, you're pouring our coffee or our beer, making our lunch, cutting our grass. Uh, uh, plowing our snow this time of year any of those any of those roles you are not going you're gonna be able to work really hard and out of the box you're not gonna be able to earn enough income to afford the rental rates that are currently considered market so really what you end up having is unless you have a job where you're making over a certain level you're right away not going to be able to afford what the market can produce on the housing side so we end up with this dichotomy based on the type of job you do all of these jobs being critical to us as a society, Uh, but the type of job you do, which is
0: unfortunate. And so on the housing stock side, Mm. when you look across the region, Mm -hmm. where do you see the most acute need within the affordable housing segment?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I. don't know that there. It would be difficult to describe the most acute because I think there are a variety of clustered acute needs. Um, and so probably I would say in the, if you had to say the most acute need, you would say it's below what we would consider thirty percent of median income. Mm-hmm. So you know about thirty thousand dollars for a family of four. Back to the earlier point, people who are doing those types of jobs, those households are struggling badly. Um, and what you can see is that there are there is no stock essentially available in the market um, that somebody at that income level could afford. And that may be a working family, but we should also consider that's a very significant percentage of our senior population as well. Uh, and so I think within within that income group, there are a variety of groups that are struggling.
0: Why? Why is it that there's such a lack of stock mm-hmm. for that 30% AMI population that you just described? Why isn't there more of it?
1: Well, there are a few reasons. I think a couple of critical ones to note uh, is that nobody nobody is building housing for that population or for many levels of median income above that. So even twice that income level, families making $60,000 a year, there is no construction going on now, either rental or home ownership, that could be affordable, that the price point is affordable to match that income level, impossible. And some of that in terms of why is driven by a number of local concerns. One of those is the value of land. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the cost of our land, which at some level we have to accept is related to our zoning. So our, our limited zoning, which essentially constrains what land can be used for, just supply and demand. So it's the, the usage of land is, is pressed down and the cost of that land is pressed up mm-hmm. and it makes it then more expensive to the end user. Mm-hmm. So the person who I see who maybe is serving me lunch, the impact of that dynamic is such that they can't afford a place to live. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, the cost of construction at the moment is incredibly high. Um, and so you, and a lot of ways you could not build at costs a house or an apartment that could be affordable to somebody, uh, at 60% of median income or higher, uh, in our region, impossible to create at the price point between the cost of land, um, the cost of any, and risk of any permitting and the cost of construction, you would not be able to do it. Even if you did not make any money at all, zero, you would not be able to create that at cost.
0: So. What is Harborlight doing? How do you go about achieving any success in your business given <laughs> right. all of those challenges. Sure. Just that was a setup, Larry,
1: I think that was a setup. <laughs> it's just special magic in the background. How back, do you do it? In the background. How back do you room. do it? That's right, that's right. Um, so uh, a lot of what you end up doing is you utilize a variety of subsidy mechanisms that are possible, different kinds of financing that are available to state or federal level, local supports like in Gloucester, you have the Community Preservation Fund, mm-hmm. also in Rockport we have this, mm-hmm. and in Manchester and in Essex, all mm-hmm. of Cape A. Mm -hmm. Uh, has CPA funds so you're using a combination of local local funding different kinds of financing levels at the state and a nonprofit delivery mechanism to make it possible to create housing that really at the end of the day the price that you can lease or sell the housing for can match those income levels we described a retiree just living on Social Security uh, such as the case might be at Rockport High School apartments or Pigeon Cove ledges um, or somebody a young worker or a working family, you're trying to match those levels. So you press down on the costs with these various other sources of money or more affordable sources of debt. The challenge with that is the, is there is limited capacity to do that, meaning there is no way. Our waiting lists on Cape Ann for our senior housing, 160, 170 names long hmm. for a building of 30 units. Uh, where you know people are never gonna make it through that list, never gonna live uh, at a a length to make it through that list to go into those units. Um, And so you can't keep up with the demand because the, the tools that are available are not, the volume is not enough to be able to keep up with the demand.
0: So there's a wait list at the ground level for individuals trying to access affordable housing. And isn't there also a wait list for nonprofits like yours? Oh yeah. When you're putting a project together and you're going after those resources yes talk about that because isn't that another barrier to to, to breaking through here
1: huge yeah so we have right now we harbor light has four projects permitted and controls the land three of them we own the land One of those is in Rockport. So, Granite Street Crossing, just uh, the old Silver Brothers landscaping for folks who may wonder where that is. Um, We have that, we own that land. The town of Rockport has funded it with CPA dollars. It's been permitted, unanimously supported. We've had it for a few years. We're just waiting in line at the state level for that to get funded. So the state has will receive maybe 100 applications a year for the kind of funding to make this housing, and they have the capacity to fund maybe 20 to 25 of those. Mm -hmm. And so the queue just gets sort of longer and longer and longer. Um, And so that's that's a lot of what happens, is you have to wait for the resources to be able to create the housing.
0: Now, I know some of the housing you've developed um, at Harbor Light is what we call supportive housing. Yeah. Housing that is both affordable but also enriched with services yeah. so that a vulnerable person or population can be supported to remain in the community. Mm-hmm. So how does it work if it's already a challenge to do affordable housing? When you add in the need to have service dollars to yeah. do supportive housing, does the challenge grow that much more?
1: It does. That's, I mean, in my opinion, you know, I'm biased, but I think that's the best kind of work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm the most partial to it. Um, all of it is good, but I think that's when you really, when you hit your missional center, it's in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So we have some housing, particularly, for example, for very frail seniors that would otherwise be housed in a nursing home. So people where they would be in a medical context uh, and that be treated as housing of last resort. That's a public policy flaw related to how we fund care for elders through Medicare and Medicaid, where those a nursing home might be uh, a location of last resort, but it's not a place to call home. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad tax policy, and so we have a number of places, particularly Harbor Lighthouse in Beverly, where there's 24-hour a day services um, and uh, meals and activities and all sorts of things provided on site for folks who have very low incomes who would otherwise be in nursing homes. We also have a new uh, program in Salem for homeless individuals, where there's a social worker available right on site. Again, very frail, vulnerable folks who are getting back into the workforce and stabilizing their lives. So to your question, it does make it harder, um, but really it's a layered approach where you're financing all of the housing, the real estate work to try to make the price point low enough for people with very limited incomes. And then you're creating the necessary partnerships uh, like we would have with say senior care in Gloucester mm-hmm. um, to, for them to be able to do services on the site for people who need the services they have to help them maintain their independence. Better quality of life for those individuals, better tax policy for everyone else in terms of what
0: that costs, and so win all the way around, but very complicated to do. But it sounds like that's a real double bottom line. Oh yes. That this idea that supportive housing helps government systems avoid costs. Yes. And helps individuals live with dignity in the community, right? So Absolutely. That's, that's incredible work.
1: Yes, very, very. Uh, I think wherever you're coming from in the spectrum, it's good value
0: so one of the things that i find most interesting about your organization is your focus on turning the idea of nimbyism on its head
1: ha. right yeah. yeah so
0: i've got one of your bumper stickers that's going on the back of my car All because right. i love this idea that yes in my backyard could be a term that that becomes yeah. a replacement for not in my backyard so can you talk about the philosophy behind that what what gave rise to focusing on Yes In My Backyard for you guys.
1: Yeah, it's it's a pretty incredible and powerful movement. I think I should also point out to your magnet that would be happy to get any more for anybody at home, and that that magnet was designed by a Gloucester resident, Deanna Fay. Uh, she's the one who designed the magnet and some of the stickers. Um, so really the idea there was people of goodwill and power at some level, right? Using their local residents and their local voice that maybe they don't recognize as being powerful. for an an affirmative, for a paying it forward um, Mm -hmm. moment where they can be affirmative about people that they're interested in this wider symbiosis, people that perhaps are working for them, people that they might just be concerned about, people that they might interact with and purchase services Mm -hmm. from. But the idea that they could come to a public forum and say, yes, I want this kind of housing for people that are gonna need it, who I realize I'm interconnected with, Uh, and would like to see that in our community in a thoughtful, contextually sensitive, long-term sustainable sort of a way. And it is like nothing I've seen when you get a crowd of people who show up to a meeting, particularly because the politicians expect if they see a crowded room mm-hmm. that everybody there is to say is there to say no. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it's very it's easy and cheap to get a room full of people to say no mm-hmm. to anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's we're New Englanders after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you try to get a group of people who show up to say yes to something, especially something that does not directly benefit them it's a mind blower. Um, and we really wanted to try to capture the energy because we met lots and lots and lots of people of goodwill around the community, but we needed some way to, um, to define and sort of coalesce that. And so the Yimby movement came out of that as sort of an alternative to the NIMBY movement to demonstrate that not the only political voice or public policy voice in affordable housing and housing land use policy settings was not the no vote only, even though the no vote might be the one likely to show up. that there was a lot of yes people. So we're trying to give the yes people a way to express themselves.
0: Wonderful, Hmm. wonderful. I mean, um, it's a, the idea that affordable housing should be controversial in and of itself, right, has always yeah. fascinated me and baffled it's me, a, honestly. It's right? a puzzle. Yes. We all, we, at the end of the day, we all need to be able to afford the yes. roof over our head, yes. right? Yes. So, so what is it about your affordable housing that, if I were a neighbor living next to one of your developments, would um, would make me want to be there and make me want to have you as a neighbor?
1: Mm-hmm. What, yeah, I think. I mean, I, I I think we strive to a certain level of standard, to a certain sense mm-hmm. of community accountability, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is really twofold. One element is how do we, how are we treating the residents that are that are in the buildings? Are they being treated at a high level with a high quality of life? Uh, and you, as neighbors, wanting to know that's what's happening in your proximity and your community because we all sort of own that together based mm-hmm. on this public support. Mm-hmm. And two, knowing that the physical asset. And what I would consider the hardcore elements of property management. Mm-hmm. Is the snow plowed? Is the grass cut well? Are we responsive yep. to problems? If a tree fell from our yard to your yard, will we take care of it promptly? Are we accessible? You know, can we handle our business very well? And can you feel like you could rely on that over time? Some of that is about our local rootedness and accountability. Some of that is, is that people know they can find us, that we're out that, that we're out there and that we're in it for the long term, and that should they need us for something, they know we're right here. Our board members are staff, our residents, me, et cetera. They know that we're right here
0: and that we mean to be here for the long Mm -hmm. long. Mm haul. I think what you say is incredibly important that the difference between poorly managed affordable housing and properly managed affordable housing is night and day. Yes. Right. So, and I think it's also true that with supportive housing in particular, what you have are staff. Yes. On site. Yes. Every day, sometimes, Mm -hmm. frequently. Yes. And that isn't always the case with multifamily housing of a variety of other types. Right. So there's someone there for a neighbor to turn to, to talk to, to get to know, to bring a complaint to, right? To bring an issue to.
1: Or a concern. Sometimes the neighbors get to be, they get to know people in the buildings and maybe have some concern for them. uh, And can say, oh, I'm worried about this person. I saw them X, Y, Z. And they know they have a place to go to get support.
0: You mentioned zoning Mm. a moment ago. Um, can you talk a little bit about the zoning challenges you've faced and some of the ideas you have for ways we can do better right. around zoning to incentivize the development of affordable housing?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's difficult when talking about zoning. I'm not sure, are we allowed to swear on this, <laughs> on this program? I'm not sure about that, but um, uh, zoning is really the dominant challenge for the creation of any kind of
0: housing, but certainly
1: affordable housing in the state of Massachusetts. Why is that?
0: Right. So inside baseball, I know that you know that. Right. But I'm not sure the audience will fully understand that. Can you shed light on that? Why? Yeah.
1: Well, because because Massachusetts is uh, one of the only places in the country where we make our decisions about what can get built where at the municipal level. Most most states in the country are doing that at a county level or a larger geography. So what ends up happening is every decision about land use becomes a political decision at a mm-hmm. local level and it mm-hmm. makes it impossible. All of the weight is toward the status quo. So even if you said to everybody in a community, we're gonna change the zoning rules and give everybody a gold brick, you'd have a hard time getting an affirmative vote on that because most of our communities require a supermajority. This is part of the housing choice legislation debate going on right now at the State House to reduce the need to change zoning laws from a supermajority, two thirds, to a simple majority, 51%. So a lot of that is around, is especially in communities where there is no multifamily housing or where there is only zoning for large lot subdivisions with very large houses. Um, And so in the communities, much of the North Shore, and think about the zoning as really like the rules of a board game. Mm-hmm. If the board game said, you can only build 3,000 square foot houses on one acre lots below 35 feet tall, and that's the only thing that can get built. For a lot of reasons, that's a bad idea, including environmentally. It's an amazingly irresponsible environmental policy. Um, and relies on the massive consumption of land for very few people at a time But the le- the, the rules of this board game then control what is allowable mm-hmm. and they control what kind of houses get built Whether you can build an apartment building the cost then of the land correspondingly It would be as if we said it would be akin to as if we said you can drive a car anywhere on 128 but the car has to be an Italian sports car Now I am partial to Italian sports cars (laughs) for obvious reasons. Um, But uh, it'd be as if that's what you said. If you have a Ford, you cannot ride on the road. We have this publicly designed road for the public, but you really have to have a really nice car to drive on it. That's what we say in a lot of our communities. This community is open, anybody can live here, but our zoning rules say, Really, you have to be able to afford a one acre lot and a 3,000 square foot house. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're gonna buy an 800,000, 900,000 million dollar home, yeah, we don't want you, you can't live here. Mm -hmm. And zoning is the control mechanism, the puppeteer, as it were, that decides what can get built where. One thing that a lot of local people don't know is we control our zoning locally. I had a woman at a recent meeting who said, doesn't the federal government control our zoning? And it's good to know that Gloucester controls their zoning and Manchester controls their zoning. Essex controls theirs. Rockport controls theirs. 351 delightful ways to have zoning in Massachusetts. Makes it unpredictable, makes it challenging, makes it very difficult and it gives control de facto control to people who would like things to remain in a certain way, and gives them the ability to exclude anyone else because they get to decide. Right, right. So we, right. Need, we need changes to zoning or we're never gonna get out of this. And that's not just for what we would consider affordable housing, big A, meaning uh, formally government sponsored affordable housing. That means the ability to build 1200 square foot capes as starter homes for our children.
0: So what work is happening that you see Currently, at the local level here in Cape Ann, in particular, mm-hmm. to begin to look at local zoning mm-hmm. and think about making sensible changes to incentivize. incentivize affordable housing production. is. It, are those conversations happening? Are there movements afoot?
1: Yeah, I think there are, move, I would say there are movements in the sense that there are pockets of individuals that are responding to things, like maybe this show, who are saying, what do we do now? There's a number of people around, the, around Cape Ann, what do we do about this? Mm-hmm. Gloucester, I think, is the farthest along, perhaps because it's the largest and has the most capacity in their community development department, really through their housing production plan. Which has formalized community meetings around housing and taken in input and gotten consultants to produce data. So they have the most recommendations related to how are we going to solve the housing problem, particularly in Gloucester. A number of those are changes to zoning law, for example, like allowing accessory dwelling units by right. That would be a good example of a change that could be made at the city level that would go a long way to alleviating housing strain, particularly for our parents.
0: Speaking of the city's housing plan for the future. What, what where are we with that plan and mm-hmm. where, where do we need to go next? Yeah, as far as I
1: know, that plan is quite evolved. I think Greg Katamatori is the Philly people would wanna check with um, about the status of its production in a formalized way. But they have done really yeoman's work uh, in that process. They've done a lot of work. It's very far advanced. I expect that they're gonna be prepared to have that public at some time soon, uh, but I'm not sure what the date is or when that gets published.
0: Um, I wanna talk a little bit about the cost to the community. Sure. If nothing changes, Mm -hmm. if we don't do something about the affordable housing crisis we're facing, Mm -hmm. regionally and nationally, what happens?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of things happen. Um, I think maybe maybe in the top three category regionally, if we don't do something about the affordable housing problem, we are not going to be able to maintain workers. So if you're an employer on the North Shore, I would say all the chambers would agree with this, you are really not going to be able to continue to hire employees, particularly at starting levels, entry level salaries, which is going to seriously damage our economic momentum in significant ways as we see massive outflow to other communities who are doing a lot of housing, Charlotte, Denver, you know, peers to the greater Boston area in terms of things like biotech, finance, et cetera. We're going to see a continued out migration of our children and our students If we don't do something about it, it's going to negatively affect our economy. I think number two, we're going to have a very serious struggle over the next couple decades as we try to house our aging population. I think we have underestimated this dramatically. The programs that were available to create senior housing in the past were largely federal through HUD or USDA, Pigeon Cove Ledges and Rockport High School in Rockport. Both of those are federal. Both of the programs that created those no longer exist. So we have, we're in the middle uh, or right on the front tip of this silver tsunami of people needing places, people who built our communities who are gonna have nowhere to go because the volume of need is so much higher than the volume of production. And that's gonna have massive negative impact on our health insurance costs, on our various family structures as we try to figure out how to support our aging parents. Um, And we're gonna have to contend with that uh, if we want anything to be different than that. Those would be the top two in my mind uh, regionally. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are they're serious questions i think there are others like how do we continue to have a vibrant artist community how do we continue to have uh, a vibrant waterfront community people that are doing again jobs like in the service industry as Gloucester is pivoting into a more heavily service economy, where are the people who are gonna work in the restaurants, where are the people who are gonna work in the tourism industry, you see this on Cape Cod, where they're struggling desperately to be able to find any kind of housing for their workers and starting to create dormitory styles and employers starting to create housing themselves. Um, so we need to do something about it if we want to have a different outcome. Have
0: you seen as a local affordable housing expert, any impact from short-term rentals, Airbnb, <laughs> Even seasonal rentals, right? This cluster and Cape Ann are a seasonal summer.
1: Yeah, I think where we're seeing that in the region is Cape Ann and Salem. Mm-hmm. I think the two, you know, the two, com- the two communities that have a lot of tourist pressure, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a stock question. If you have 100 units and 10 of them go offline for Airbnbs. They're very hard to hold for rentals for and it creates pressure in the rest of the market. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we're going to have to deal with that some way, whether that's through a transfer tax or some other production. But it's hard for me to imagine how we could replace those units even with a transfer fee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you see um, any promise for new approaches for funding affordable housing? So you mentioned transfer taxes mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's an Airbnb tax, if I'm correct, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see any bright, spot there any possibility to generate resources or or is it really just a drop in the bucket at this point
1: Well, I think both of those are true. So I do see it as a bright spot in that I think it will generate more resources, but it is also a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. So I think the two places where we create the most volume for affordable housing funding, it would be an increase to the cap on the low-income housing tax credit at the federal level, uh, which at the moment, the tension at the federal level, it's hard to imagine that, but that has been something that's been floated. And then at the state level, uh, big thank you to our state rep and senator, uh, Rep Ferranti Mm -hmm. and Senator Tarr. The bond bill at the state level is is magnificent. Uh, Where we have we are without peer in the country for what we do at a state level, and that is also a tremendous resource. So we need to continue to support the affordable housing bomb bill
0: uh, on renewal. So with about a minute and a half left, will you tell our audience what's next for Harbor Light? You must have some projects in the works. We got
1: yeah, we got a few. You know, we just keep those balls in the air. So hopefully, we have in the funding round right now. Um, At the state level, we have the first phase of Anchor Point in Beverly, which would be 37 units for families close to Beverly High School. And we have the Granite Street Crossing project in Rockport, just off of the train station, 23 units, 17 for seniors, 6 for families. So we've put those two forward at the state level. We're hoping one or both of those in the near term will be able to be supported. And then we'll be hopefully building one of those in the near future. We are finished. We are in the middle of construction now uh, in Beverly on um, what's known as a community scale project. These are little projects that do infill. So it's a six unit family project right next to the Beverly Depot train station. Uh, framing's gone up and they're starting to wrap it up. We'll be building that this winter hopefully occupying that later next summer. So those are the things on our mind. Uh, we got a few other ones in the cooker. Uh, there's always something going on.
0: You know, I, I, um, I, I cut my teeth in this business and- New York City Mm. 20 years ago. You mentioned infill development. It's a real passion of mine. I'd love to come back at some point in the future, Andrew, and talk about smart growth and infill development and and, uh, the best practices for how a city like Gloucester in particular can really repurpose its land and some of its lots that are are there and available for development. So Mm -hmm. it's been great to spend time with you. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next edition of Democratic Dialogue.
1: Take care.